the 29th Psalm. A Psalm of David. Ascribe to Yahweh, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due His name. Worship Yahweh and the splendor of holiness. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. Yahweh over many waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is full of majesty. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. Yahweh breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of Yahweh flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of Yahweh makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in His temple all cry, Glory. Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. Yahweh sits enthroned as King forever. May Yahweh give strength to His people. May Yahweh bless His people with peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, hallowed be Your name. You are worthy of all glory and honor. There is none like You. You speak and there is. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. Everything that is, is because of You. You are sovereign and You are Lord over all. Forgive us. Forgive us for ignoring Your voice which is all around us. Which even is us. That we are because You have spoken. Have mercy on us now, and by your special revelation, by your word, speak to us redeemingly in Christ, bringing us back into communion with you, so that we might ascribe to you the glory that is due your name. In the strong name of Jesus we ask this, amen. Before we trek through this psalm, Let's do a flyover so that we can take in the rich and varied topography that we're going to cross. The psalm begins in the heavens, verses 1 and 2, and it ends on earth in verses 10 and 11. And in between, there's a storm. We get from heaven to earth by means of a storm. The storm begins, it forms over the waters, verse 3. And then it moves over the mountain forest of Lebanon, verses 5 and 6. And it ends in the wilderness of Kadesh. So in this psalm, we go from heaven to earth by means of this storm that begins over the waters, moves over the forest of Lebanon, and into the wilderness of Kadesh. And also as we're flying over, notice the symmetry. The obvious mark is all the repeated phrases. But also, 
this psalm naturally has two parts. You have the introduction, verses 1 and 2, the conclusion, verses 10 through 11, and then that center part where we're told again and again of the voice of Yahweh, and it's tracing this storm and its path. And in the heavenly introduction and the earthly conclusion, we each have, in both of them, there are four stanzas. And in both stanzas, Yahweh's name is used every time in each of those. And then in the center section concerning the storm, you have the voice of Yahweh, Yahweh's name, used seven times in that central part. There's, there's, a, there's a very intentional structure to all of this. And also as we fly over, we can't help but notice that this psalm is very different from the handful that we've been studying recently. There is no element of lament here at all. There's not even a petition. The closest you get is the benediction coming at the conclusion, which in many translations I think is better rendered simply as a declaration, uh, as we have it in the Christian Standard Bible. Yahweh gives His people strength. Yahweh blesses His people with peace. So this is a psalm that is full of majesty and glory and splendor. Spurgeon comments, just as the eighth psalm is to be read by moonlight when the stars are bright, as the nineteenth needs the rays of the rising sun to bring out its beauty, So this can be best rehearsed beneath the black wing of tempest by the glare of the lightning or amid that dubious dusk which heralds the war of elements. The verses march to the tune of thunderbolts. The psalm thunders, not as one of those distant peals that rumbles but as one of those nearby claps that reverberates in your chest such that you can't but involuntarily jolt at the sound of it. The psalm opens with a command, a summons, a call to worship. Who's giving the command? It's David. God's king is is leading in this worship. And who's he calling upon with this summons? The ESV has heavenly beings. You might notice the alternative rendering indicated in the ESV could be sons of God or sons of might. The NAS has sons of the mighty, but there the idea is indicated by this alternate footnote in the ESV. The idea is that this could be this could flip either way. It could be sons of the mighty or mighty sons. Either way, the idea is that, I think it's clear, these are the angelic host that David is summoning to worship. I don't think David's under any impression that he has the authority over the angelic host and that they somehow need to uh, get in shape and follow his commands with this. I don't think David is under that impression, and yet I think he is anticipating in this the one who does. The king who does. Hebrews 1, the writer 
establishes the superiority of the Christ over the angels. Now that's a very nuanced statement that's being made there. The superiority of the Christ over the angelic host. He's not speaking of the superiority of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. But the superiority of the Son of God become flesh over the angelic host. The Christ, the Son of David. So Hebrews 1, 3-4. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. As the eternal Son of God, of course He's always been superior. But it's speaking of as the one who is in union with us, who has remaining truly God, become truly man, in that very act, He's now become superior and exalted to the angelic host. That's what helps you make sense of that peculiar psalm. Psalm 8, which goes on to be quoted by the author of Hebrews in this vein. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So think of the exalted Christ. He is ruling over the world made new. Eternally, He had authority over all the earth. But He could not exercise that authority without denying who He was in making all things new and redeeming sinners. That comes because of His humiliation. So, it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, this is the 8th Psalm, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned Him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under His feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present we do not see everything in subjection to Him, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death For everyone. So Jesus. Is God's king. The son of David. In union with us. Is now exalted. And at the right hand of the father. Supreme over the angelic host. And so all the more. With the son of David. As the one leading us in worship. Can we not. Exclaim with more zeal, ascribe to Him, O heavenly host, you mighty sons, you sons of the mighty, the glory due His name. This command, this summons, even as we would express it, is not because the angels are failing. And we've somehow got a one-up on them. They eternally behold His manifest glory and sing His praise. Why would we say such? 
It's simply, simply an acknowledgement of this. Praise must be. When we're concerned with Yahweh, the triune God, praise simply must be. His very godness necessitates it. In Isaiah 6, we get some sense of this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, He covered His face. With two, He covered His feet. And with two, He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Or recall Revelation 4. At once, John tells us, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne there were burning the seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like that, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is, and is to come. If you want a further awareness of this, sometimes in your Bible reading plan, you start to rush through Ezekiel. Take the afternoon, and skim through Ezekiel, and then slow down, and reflect on any time you see the angelic host, the sons of the mighty, these mighty sons. And look at them worship God and, and look at the images depicting Him as He sits on His throne, sovereign, and His glory filling the temple. Reflecting on these passages, I think, makes clear what our author has in mind whenever he speaks of the splendor of holiness. This could be a reference to the angelic host and how they appear such as in Psalm 110, where we're told that the saints, in that instance, as they worship God, are clothed in holy garments. 
I don't think that's the idea here. I think Psalm 96 is the better parallel. I don't think this is saying that we should worship Yahweh being clothed in the splendor of holiness. As much as it's saying worship Him in the splendor of His holiness. Psalm 96. Splendor and majesty are before Him. It's not to say that if you look out in front of God and you see the crowd around Him, there are splendor and... No, it's saying they emanate from Him. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to Yahweh, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Now in that passage, I think it's clear. What's the splendor of holiness that's in the mind of the psalmist? It's Yahweh's. They are then the the splendor of His holiness, His, His glory, His majesty. And this is why ascribing these things to Him is His due. Again, this praise simply must be. It's right that it should be. It isn't that God needs these things. It's that the Creator's glory bears upon the the creation and most profoundly man, it bears upon us such that it must be recognized. This is the purpose, the end, the goal of all creation. C.S. Lewis in one place speaks of the problem of praise. That as he saw all these requests, especially in the Psalms, not these requests, these commands, these summons to worship and ascribe to Yahweh as due, And recognizing that they ultimately come from God. He said it struck him as first like a vain woman begging for compliments. And then he began to make a turn as he reflected on what it means whenever we say that a picture, a work of art is admirable. He reflects the sense in which the picture deserves or demands admiration is this. That admiration is the correct, adequate, or appropriate response to it. That if paid, admiration will not be thrown away. And that if we do not admire, we shall be stupid, insensible, and great losers. We shall have missed something. And that way, many objects, both in nature and in art, may be said to deserve or merit or demand admiration. It was from this end, which will seem to some irreverent, that I found it best to approach the idea that God demands praise. He is that object to admire which, or if you like, to appreciate which, is simply to be awake, to have entered the real world, not to appreciate which, is to have lost the greatest experience, and in the end to have lost all. The incomplete and crippled lives of those who are tone deaf, have never been in love, never known true friendship, never cared for a good book, never enjoyed the feel of the morning air on their cheeks, never, I am one of these, he writes, enjoyed football, 
are faint images of it. God is so glorious that to shirk Him of the glory due His name is what sin is. And that sin is so glorious, if I may use that word, so intense that it is deserving, justly and righteously so, of an eternal hell. So can you see that this threefold summons a scribe, a scribe, a scribe is not redundant. It's not too much. It's not over the top. God is so glorious that it's not improper even for we formerly fallen men redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. It's not improper for us to beholding and sensing something of it to call even on the angelic host to give to Him the glory that's due His name because He's simply that awesome. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. It cannot be said enough. And the psalmist now turns from hearing, excuse me, from commanding the angels' voices to hearing Yahweh's voice. He wants in this to give us some sense of the glory and strength of Yahweh so that we might be ushered into this worship and praise that he's summoning the angels to. And the voice of Yahweh here is simply another way of speaking of Yahweh's sovereign power. I think that's made clear by a couple of passages. Verse 3. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters, but then notice, Yahweh over many waters. To say it's the voice of Yahweh is simply to say the same thing as that Yahweh is. Or verse 8. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness. Wilderness. Now, speaking of it though in this way, the voice of Yahweh recalls Genesis 1. Where nine times we're told, and God said. And when He said it, it was so. And it was good. He speaks, and there is. We return to the first chapter of Hebrews, where we read that He, Jesus, is the radiance and glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his, by the word of his power. Indy Wilson writes, I look around at the stuff the world is of the world, and I ask myself, what is it made of? Words. Magic. Words, words spoken by the infinite, words so potent, spoken by one so potent that they have weight and mass and flavor. They are real. They have taken on flesh and dwelt among us. They are us. In the Christian story, the material world came into existence at the point of speech, and that speech was ex nihilo, from nothing. 
God did not look around for some cosmic goo to sculpt or another God to dice and recycle. He sang a song, composed a poem, began a novel so enormous that even the Russian novelists are dwarfed by its heaped up pages. You are spoken, I am spoken. We stand on a spoken stage, the spinning kind, the round kind, the moist kind, the kind of stage with beetles and laughters and babies and dirt and snow and fresh cut cedar. You are made of cells. I am made of cells. My cells are built on molecules. My molecules make use of atoms. My atoms are mostly space. But the bits that aren't are called quarks. My quarks are standing because they are obedient. They've been told to by a voice they cannot disobey. For Berkeley and Buddhist and most breeds of Hindu, this world is illusory. Sleight of hand. It seems material the way smoke plays with mirrors, but it isn't. The world is Vegas magic. Pick a card. Kick a stone. There are no tricks here. There are no props, no prefabbed white rabbits. The magic is real, and I stand blinking on the stage because of it. I'm real. I'm heavy. I'm matter. Cut me, and I'll bleed. But I'm not made of anything. And if the magician, the poet, the word, if the singer were to stop his voice, I would simply cease to be. Ponder. The power of the voice of Yahweh. Everything you see, touch, smell, hear, all of it is because He has spoken. He upholds all. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. There is no other power than this supreme and omnipotent power. All else is for no other reason than that He wills it. But here, the psalmist wants to zoom in. And in particular, follow this storm as it traverses this varied landscape. The storms are awesome, but there is something particularly terrifying about a storm at sea. Verse 3. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The glory of God thunders Yahweh over many waters. Consider the accounts we have in Scripture of a storm at sea and how terrified those who are in them become. We think of Jonah. We think of Paul. And then there are those two instances with our Lord. We, we often easily recall Jesus walking on the water, but perhaps what we forget is that whenever He did so, it wasn't a placid sea, but a tempestuous one that He's walking on. But then there's that episode in Mark 4. Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. 
He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? These seasoned fishermen are afraid for their lives. But once the storm that has caused that initial panic has been dealt with, we're told they were then filled with great fear. Why? Because the one who had both spoken and silenced the storm was in the boat with them. And they sensed something of His power and His majesty. The storm then moves from either the Mediterranean in towards the forest of Lebanon, Syrian being Mount Hermon, the range associated with that mountain, or it moves from the Sea of Galilee north onto those forests. Now, you remember whenever Solomon built the temple, he asked uh, Hiram, king of Tyre, to hew the cedars of Lebanon for the temple project. These were mighty trees. They think of East Texas pines, something along those lines. They could grow up to 130 feet, be 8 feet in diameter. And as this storm comes upon this mountain forest range, these mighty trees snap. And the collective effect of this is such that it looks like the mountain range is skipping, frolicking like a young wild ox. I recall some years back when we were in Tulsa, whenever a, a horrid ice storm hit that area, and there were a lot of old trees in our neighborhood. And the sound through the night, the continual unceasing sound, not of twigs snapping off, but of large limbs cracking, even some trees being ripped in half. And add to that the accompaniment of what we have here of fierce winds and crashing lightning and rumbling thunder. And the cacophony must have been terrifying to be without shelter and such. Or consider the added shrapnel that those forests lent in the Battle of the Bulge, as artillery came shrieking through. See these trees not being snapped by the sheer force of the winds, but being splintered and shattered by flames of fire, by bolts of lightning. Makes it as though Thor plays with static electricity. Next, the storm passes on, verse 8, to the wilderness of 
Kadesh. The storm is so violent that it shakes even this barren terrain. But then there comes what to some is an odd image, so much so that they try as hard as they can to get it to say something else. So you may have an alternate reference point again in the ESV here that says a revocalization. You see, the Hebrew text has no vowel markings. And they say, if we get creative with the vowels here, it could mean he makes the oaks to shake. And that, that just fits everything better. I don't think we need to go that far. I think something substantial is being said here. He makes the deer give birth. And I believe the idea is that this storm is so ferocious, it causes this deer to prematurely go into labor. And it says the voice of Yahweh does even this. Not only the storm, but every effect of the storm is Yahweh's sovereign voice at play as well. Not only these natural displays of God's awesome power and might, but where and whom they strike, every bit of it is under His sovereign control. The forest are stripped bare, and all in his temple cry, Glory, Glory. Who of us, especially living in Oklahoma, who of us has not seen a storm so awesome and terrible that you can't? But exclaim, wow. Believe that's what the psalmist is at work towards and what he's brought us to in this all in his temple cry glory. The godness of God is such that if you get any inkling of it, that saying glory is as automatic as breathing. Praise not simply must be. But when even blind sinners are finally brought face to face with the manifest glory of the risen Christ, glory isn't simply that it must be. Uh, excuse me, praise it isn't simply that it must be. Praise is. Before the glorious Christ, praise is. Now we're told, verse 10, that Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. This storm is as rich in water as it was in thunder and lightning and wind. The word for flood here is not a tame word. It's wild. Perhaps better rendered deluge. This is the only place that this word is found save for one other section of Scripture. You're already there, aren't you? It's found 
12 times in Genesis 6 through 11. 12 times, Genesis 6 through 11, and then never used again in all of Scripture except this psalm. And that imagery, I think, a major reason why it's used here, it's not to just further impress upon you the terror of the storm, but I think it's to link Yahweh's rule, who speaks such, with the conclusion that you might wonder how it follows. May Yahweh give strength to His people. May Yahweh bless His people with peace. In the midst of the greatest storm ever to fall upon this earth to date of which there is promised there will be no other like it. There will be a storm of fire, but not one like this one in flood. In the midst of it, in covenant, in grace, His chosen people found strength. They were blessed. And they were at peace. The voice of Yahweh is awesome. And if we are to praise with joy its glory and might, it must be done from the safety of the ark of Christ. You remember in the previous psalm, David pleaded to his covenant God, To you, O Yahweh, I call, my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent, I become like those who go down to the pit. I think it's without reason that this psalm follows that prayer in Psalm 28. Yahweh speaks, and oh, when He speaks, it is strength to His people. Their blessing and peace. The voice that shatters trees strengthens God's people. The voice that thunders over the water gives peace to the saints. One commentator writes, How expressive is peace? As the closing word of this particular psalm. It spans the psalm like a rainbow. The opening of the psalm shows us the heavens opened. And the throne of God in the midst of the angelic songs of praise. The close of the psalm shows us on earth. His people victorious and blessed with peace. In the midst of Yahweh's voice of anger which shakes all things. Gloria in excelsis is its beginning and Pax in terras, peace on earth, its conclusion. Glory to God in the highest, its beginning, peace on earth, its conclusion. How 
can you know on which side of this storm you stand? You either stand in this storm with its wrath and fury bearing down upon you, or you stand in the one who bore this very storm of God's wrath and anger for sinners. The angel told Joseph concerning the child in Mary's womb, you shall call his name Jesus, meaning Yahweh saves. You shall call his name Jesus for, because he will save his people from their sins. The way he saved us from the storm is by bearing it. Whenever that sky grew dark, as he was crucified on the cross, it was because the wrath of his almighty Father bore down upon him for our sins. And now, the risen Christ sits exalted at the right hand of the Father. And in Him, and Him alone, you find peace. And those who have eternally cry out glory. Ascribe to Him the glory due His name. Behold the storm that bore down on the storm speaker for our failing to recognize the glory revealed. Ascribe to Him the glory due His name. Let us then long for that day when we with the heavenly host will without sin worship Him in the splendor of His holiness. Let's pray. Father, if there is any sinner here outside the refuge of Christ, grant them faith now and may they cast themselves upon Him. For Your saints, May love and zeal for you to be glorified above all be kindled afresh and anew in our hearts. May we worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.